Welcome to True Crime Shine, the show that delves into history's true crimes but seeks to add a human connection to the story. Today, we have a historic tale and it dates back to the 50s. On the evening of January 17, 1950, a group of armed men in Halloween masks and chauffeur caps pulled off what has been called the crime of the century in Boston, Massachusetts. They dragged cash, checks, and money orders out of the Brinks Armored Car Depot, a loot that totaled over $2.77 million, nearly $30 million in today's currency. The FBI investigation was massive and took more than six years before evidence sufficient for indictment and arrest could be made. Just five days before the statute of limitations would expire. On January 12, 1956, Six of the gang members were arrested, two more followed in May. On October 9th, 1956, eight of the gang members involved in the robbery were found guilty, not including two who had already died, and sentencing was for the maximum allowed, 20 years to life in prison. This high-profile money heist had been the largest in U.S. history. So what went wrong? Dusty O'Connell investigates. I was initially drawn to this story just for the audacity of the heist. This crew thought they could pull off the most coveted idea amongst criminals, the perfect heist. And it went off basically without a hitch. The seven men who entered the bank had rubber-soled shoes so the bank staff wouldn't hear him come in. They had somehow acquired keys for the locks to interior rooms. They were all dressed roughly the way a Brinks truck operator would dress, with Halloween masks obscuring their identity, and 35 minutes later they were on their way out the door. No injuries, no evidence left behind, save for a roll of tape and one of the chauffeur's caps. And when I discovered that our other researcher and intrepid producer Vincent was distantly related to one of the perpetrators of the Great Brinks robbery, we reached out to him and his mother to hear more. Today I'm here with Vincent Minucci. Vincent is not a criminologist or a historian, but he does have a unique connection to both the cats and the mice in this story, so to speak. So you're fairly knowledgeable about this particular event. Tell me, why Why is that? What, what appeals to you about this? Uh, this heist has been a much-talked-about event in my family going back to before I was born. Well before I was born. It comes up at nearly all holidays, weddings, and funerals. Because James Faraday was my grandfather's first cousin. The story of this crime of the century sounds like a plot of a movie so much that it spawned Four Hollywood major motion pictures starring such notable names as Leslie Nielsen, Julie Adams, Peter Falk, and Paul Sorvino. But the people involved in this true crime story aren't just characters from a movie. They were real people. I remember my parents said that um, James Faraday, they used to call him Gentleman Jim because he was such a nice guy. I remember that very clearly. Um, he was raised in Southie, which is the south of Boston. It's in, it's, it was at the time an Irish Catholic ghetto. He was caught days before the statute of limitations ran out. He was caught in an apartment in Dorchester, um, Boston, Dorchester section of Boston. And, um, before he was caught, he did come to Pennsylvania and he went to my grandfather's house in Willow Grove. My grandfather wouldn't let him in. And then he went to my uncle. Junior's house in uh, Wormister, and he wouldn't let him in either because they knew the FBI was 
after him because my father's cousin was an FBI agent. And uh, so I think they had a lot of the, the family. They were checking a lot of the family's homes. Um, he did die in prison. I thought he was let out, but he did die in prison. I think the prison was Walpole, what they call Walpole. Um, he died either on or near Christmas Eve of that year. Uh, my cousin, because my, my uncle Junior was his contact, uh, my cousin said that she knows her dad was told on Christmas Eve. They also think, because um, he never had a gun, he was the one who didn't have a gun, that he's the one that staked out, there was a, an apartment across from the Brinks Depot in, I think it was North Boston, and they think he's the one that like wrote down the times of you know, the shifts and the guards and all that, that they got to know the people's schedule so, so much. But his name was James Faraday. Um, they called him Jimmy, like G-I-M-M-I-E. I think that was basically more of a Gaelic name, even though in Ireland it would be Seamus, but they called him Jimmy. Um, and, and then as he got older, they called him Gentleman Jim. Uh, you know that he used to do things for homework cards. I don't know what else. Um, about him because honestly, like, you know, my father really liked him and said to my uncle junior, but the rest of the family was pretty well embarrassed that, you know, cause it was national news. He was all over the newspaper and there's a picture of him in the Boston globe. And I don't know if it was right after he was arrested or whatever, but according to, according to my family, they say my father looked just like him at that age. Wow. Is it, safe for me to be talking to you are you like the unheralded scion of a boston crime family or something <laughs> uh not hardly no and my family had no other criminal connections to my knowledge and more pertinent to the brinks robbery the fbi agent in charge of the case was another first cousin of james and my grandfather so tell me about your grand cousin james faraday he spent the last half of his life in prison, basically, right? Yes. He was originally in a notoriously bad Boston prison, but was relocated to a non-max prison, seemingly on good behavior, and possibly also because he had taken on a job while in prison writing the inside messages of Hallmark cards. So what do you know about your other first cousin, the FBI agent in charge of the case. Is he um, nearly as famous? Uh, sadly, no. We we don't really know much else about him. Uh, he, he and that portion of the family didn't really stay connected. They stayed up in Boston while a lot of the family moved down to Philadelphia after uh, the 1950s. Now, we heard the statute of limitations was almost up, and these guys almost got away with it. How did they go down? In a cliche sense, greed. In June of 1950, just six months after committing the perfect heist, O'Keefe and Gus Giura were arrested in Pennsylvania for having committed another burglary. By way of FBI informants, it was found, or at least rumored, that O'Keefe had demanded Pino send him money to help overturn his conviction. On being released, he then had to stay in trial for yet another burglary conviction and parole violations. Because he never saw his share from the Brinks robbery, or so he later claims, he turned to kidnapping Vincent Costa, Pino's brother-in-law, to hold him for ransom to cover his legal costs. 
Pino was forced to pay a small amount to O'Keefe for the return of Costa, both angered by the kidnapping and also fearing O'Keefe would turn on the remaining gang members. Pino made multiple failed attempts on killing O'Keefe. Well, Burt traveled to Boston and made an attempt on O'Keefe, wounding but not killing him. And while in hospital, the FBI made their move and convinced O'Keefe, who had already been a suspect in the Brinks robbery, as the truck was found dismantled near his home, to give up the rest of the gang, leading to the January 12th arrests. Although it may not sound like typical conversation for family gatherings, James and the robbery were frequently the topic at Vincent's. If you're wondering why that is, Vincent has the answer. Now that true Hollywood ending, with the exception of roughly $600,000, the remaining $27 million adjusted to today's value has never been found. Now, the running conversation or feeling is that somebody at some point is going to be left in a will, some form of instructions or the actual money itself. Uh, There is always the theory that in James' burial, there is some clue as to where the money may be hidden. Uh, You know, it comes up often that perhaps we should head up to Boston and... Take a look. So where's the rest of the money? We may never know. But for some of us, this not-to-be-forgotten legendary story is, in itself, pure gold. Pure gold.